Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. For about 300 years, Europe went through a mass hysteria of paranoia and accusations. The cause of this panic? Witchcraft. The fears of these Europeans seem almost comical today, so how did the threat of witches become so serious to the average European? Today we'll talk about the factors needed for this phenomenon to take hold. Please note that this topic contains some slightly more mature subject matter, but we'll do our best with the material we have. Let's begin. This is HI101. I'm here with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about uh, the witch trials of the early modern period. We decided to do this one because it's October and... Yeah, it'd be a really awesome Halloween episode, maybe. Exactly. So, I mean, witchcraft is something that people talk about all over the world and have for thousands and thousands of years, so we sort of decided to narrow it down to... The period that would be most well-known for our listeners, which is basically between about 1420 and about 1750. Those are pretty rough numbers, but we'll work with them for now. And during this period, there was a huge panic of people thinking that their neighbors, that strangers, that basically anybody could potentially be performing harmful magic towards them. And it turned into... Uh, I mean, it, it, it is sometimes sort of overstated how big of an impact it had on society, but it definitely is a large enough thing to talk about in a broader context, which is really interesting stuff. So I figured maybe we'd talk about what people thought a witch was at this mm -hmm. point in time in Europe. Basically, a witch was any human being who had made uh, a pact with Satan, was the base definition. Okay. Um, the idea being that for one reason or another, sometimes because they were just horrible people, sometimes because they were desperate and felt that they had no other choice, they decided to make a deal with the devil to give them certain powers, and in return, the devil expected them to perform maleficia against other people, so harmful magic. So was it considered like an anti-religion to the like mainstream sort of Christian I... beliefs at the time, or...? No, I mean, I, I don't think anyone would say that witches were necessarily... Like worshipping Satan. Well, they did worship Satan, but they sort of saw it within the framework or the con context of Christianity. Oh, okay. So it was seen less as its own religion and more of an anti-Christianity. 
Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. And we'll see that actually a lot as we go through sort of what people believed witches did, what people uh, looked for when they were hunting for witches, where the whole concept of witchcraft in Europe came from. Mm -hmm. It's really just a reversal of what they believed was Orthodox Christianity, which is kind of an interesting uh, take on it. So, uh, yeah, fundamentally demon worship and, and Satanism, but their idea of what Satanism was, again, was sort of a, a turning on the head of, of contemporary Christianity. So one of the one of the main things that witches supposedly did was was attend what they called the witches' Sabbath, which was a gathering of witches, and and part of this gathering was uh, the Black Mass. Basically, any source that you ask about this will have a different version of what the Black Mass looked like, uh, or the, the Sabbath in general, because they didn't happen. They weren't a thing that, that ever happened at all. But to their minds, in their minds, the Black Mass was sort of a, a reversal of anything that was done at a standard Mass. So rather than uh, the Eucharist, they would have a mockery of the Eucharist. Oh, Often okay. they would do things like um, incorporate animals into the Mass, which was seen as incredibly sacrilegious. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the Black Mass, there, there were so many different sources that that uh, sort of deferred on what went on there that I don't want to get too much into details. But one of the things specifically that was problematic about the Black Mass was that occasionally what it involved was taking an actual uh, communion wafer from a church and using that in sacrilegious ways. So oh, okay. that's that's one thing that was particularly offensive to to people sort of looking for witches or being told about witches because... The, the period that we're talking about, or, or a chunk of the period that we're talking about here, is, is pre-Reformation, mm-hmm. which means that basically everyone was Catholic, right. which means that everyone believed in transubstantiation, which is that the, the communion wafer was literally the body of Christ. So, okay. I mean, doing anything other than using that for, for religious purposes yeah. was about as offensive as you can get. Which is also, there were allegations of murder, there were allegations of cannibalism, there were allegations of infanticide, so killing babies, incest, basically anything that they could think of as being offensive or dehumanizing or antisocial behavior, anything that you can think of along those lines, mm-hmm. witches were accused of at this point in time. Not a good time to be a witch. Not, not exactly. Uh, the infanticide part was kind of interesting in that there are certain ties to um, folk medicine and midwifery and things like that, mm-hmm. because those people would often be accused of, of witchcraft. But we'll kind of come around to that a little bit later. The other thing that they were accused of was being able to fly. So often uh, a part of the witch's sabbath when they talked about what happened there, would be the creation of magical ointments that would allow them to fly. Sometimes they would just use these ointments, you know, on themselves, on their hands, and they would be able to fly. Sometimes they would spread them on broomsticks. That's where you get the flying broomstick thing. Mm, Occasionally they could fly through the help of flying goats. Again, (laughs) the the stories of what witches got up to... Mm-hmm. varied so much over the years, depending on the region, depending on who's telling these things. Because again, this isn't happening. Yeah. <laughs> so when we talk about what witches do, we're talking about what people said witches got up to, mm-hmm. which in a lot of ways is more telling about those people who are telling these tales than it is about 
uh, about any actual um, folk medicine or any rituals uh, Mm -hmm. outside of Christianity that were actually taking place. A couple other key indicators that someone was a witch are that when the witch pledged themselves to the devil, the devil would leave his mark somewhere on their body. So uh, the the devil's mark would be, you know, and supposedly left by his claws or sometimes his teeth. It would almost always be on the left side of the body. Hmm. And it could look, strangely enough, a lot like a mole or a skin tag or something like that. But people who hunted witches claimed to be able to tell the difference. Right, okay. Another thing that often came along was a, a spirit familiar. And this, this ch- kind of changed from region to region as well. Sometimes it was a demon in the form of an animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, other times it would be a, uh, a a demon that came to them in, in human form. And this kind of tied into legends of what they called succubus or incubus, which were demons who basically seduced human beings. Mm-hmm. Their, their aim actually was to create a half-demon, half-human, but it never actually worked out. But often people who were accused of witchcraft, when they confessed, and I use the word confess very loosely because... <laughs> Uh, we'll get around to that, but often it was under torture. Mm-hmm. When they confessed to this, they would say that they were seduced by these spirits who, you know, once once they actually went through the, the act with the, with the demon, then basically once they had done that, they had no choice but to pledge themselves to the devil. Right. Right. So these these incubuses and succubuses were there to, to quite literally seduce people into witchcraft. So sometimes those were considered the familiars. And what you would get with the familiar, and similar to the Devil's Mark, was what they called a, the witch's teat, which again, a mark somewhere on the body mm-hmm. uh, that supposedly the witch used to feed the, the, um, the familiar. Again, would look like a skin tag or would look like, say, a, a scar from childhood, but which, which hunters could always tell. So were black cats then associated with witches during this time, or did that come about later? Yeah, they were seen as um, a really common type of familiar. Mm. There were also a lot of associations between Satan and black cats. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure. I, I couldn't find. I couldn't quite get to the bottom of the black cat thing. But when you see accounts of the witch's Sabbath, I mean, part of one one of the uh, one of the defining qualities of a witch's Sabbath is that Satan was there. He was at the the head of the table usually there was a banquet sometimes it was really good food sometimes it was weird rotting stuff and also you know the flesh of babies and things like that like again it varies all over the place but satan was almost always there and he would take a number of different forms sometimes uh, one of them that i that i came across was a half man half cat he would have Mm. like his upper half would look like this sort of radiant beautiful angelic Mm -hmm. man and his bottom half would be a black cat. Right. So, like, the, the legs and, and, and tail of, of a cat. Again, a lot of what I think they were sort of aiming for in this imagery was sort of antisocial, anti-human, right? Like, there's nothing, you know, there's, we, we know humans and we know animals. Yeah. But there's nothing quite as unnatural as a half-animal, <laughs> half-human. Yeah. It's meant to unsettle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what else went on at the Witch's Sabbath while we're on that? Uh, generally, there would be uh, there's a very specific dance that was done where all the witches uh, formed a circle facing outward and danced around in a circle. Sometimes there would be one woman holding a candle mm. in the center. Sometimes there wouldn't. But that, that circle dance was fairly uh, well agreed upon that that happened at these 
Sabbaths that mm. never occurred. Um, there was always food. There was always a section where, one by one, the witches would tell Satan what Maleficia they had been up to since mm-hmm. the last Sabbath. So they would report in. Right. Satan would let them know, you know, good job, or you didn't do enough. If they hadn't done enough, there would often be torture involved uh, as some sort of punishment. Then uh, Satan would give each person uh, new bad things that they should do before the next one. So was there like a like a designated person who would channel Satan then? Or was it sort of like no. an inner voice kind of? No, Satan was there. Oh, okay. Yeah, he showed up. He just showed up. He okay. was there. Yeah, he, he, he wouldn't miss that party. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've had scholars since that have, and I wasn't planning to get into this for a while, but we've had scholars that have kind of said that, they've kind of said that potentially what we're looking at through the witch hunts was that there were actually groups of people who were performing a, uh, a pre-Christian pagan religion, and that what we're seeing in reports of the witch's Sabbath was sort of exaggerated accounts mm-hmm. of what happened. And oh, okay. so you would have someone ritualistically portraying uh, a god, a, a pagan uh, god, that was then sort of conflated into the story of, right. of people actually going and, and seeing Satan. Oh, okay. Um, most historians don't think that's the case. But again, we can get a little bit more into that later. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, the the idea that it was it would be an actual person that was channeling the the uh, the presence of Satan that's a fairly new idea. Mm-hmm. When people were hunting witches in the early modern period, they believed that, that when he was they like went, actually there when they went to the Sabbath, Satan was there. Okay. Uh, I, and again, he would be there in in certain forms. Sometimes the half man, half cat. Sometimes he would be there as a uh, toad. Hmm. Um, they, like there's, there's a lot of different images that, that okay. they would use for, for Satan, but it's always kind of disconcerting. It's always at least partially incredibly ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, they believe that, that other than certain demons, you could sort of see when someone was evil. There's like your appearance is altered by your moral state, mm, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so demons being inherently evil were inherently ugly, mm-hmm. except for specific ones, incubus, succubus, that like needed to require... Like people in. Exactly. They were required to look attractive to do their uh, maleficia. Mm-hmm. So other than those, it's probably going to be ugly in some way. So let's see. We had the circle dance. We had the confessions to Satan. We had the feasts. Just before the confessions to Satan, there was direct worship of Satan, so there was literal bowing to him. Uh, There's one instance that comes up in just about every account of the witch's Sabbath, uh, which is that they were required to kiss Satan's anus as part of the the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And again, I think when you're looking at this, you can kind of think about it in terms of what is the most offensive, the most anti-Christian the most unthinkable act that you could think of, right? So that fits in with, you know, eating babies, and that fits in Mm -hmm. with incest, and that fits in... Like, take the scandalous of the scandalous and put it together. Yeah, pick the polar opposite and take it to, like, its its logical conclusion as extreme as possible. So, yeah, then the the witches were sent back to their homes. Sometimes they would do things like uh, leave an enchanted stick in their bed so that their husband wouldn't notice that they had been gone. Because these always always took place hmm. at night. Okay. They would go back. They would cause disease, famine, crop failure, natural disasters, basically anything that you can think of that 
isn't readily attributable to uh, a cause and effect sort of right. sort of thing. So if something bad happens and you can't directly explain it, you would just say, oh, a witch must have caused this? Absolutely. And uh, I think really when you get down to it, that's sort of the whole point of the witch hunt, is that the period that we're talking about here, the early modern period, it's post-medieval, so it's not exactly, you know, we're not talking about the feudal system, changes are happening in the late uh, in the late 15th century, we have the discovery of the new world, so things are opening up a little bit, their worldviews are changing, but we also haven't gotten to the Enlightenment, to the Renaissance, where you get things like the um, uh, scientific revolution, where you get the sort of ideas about the agency of the individual in the outside world. These are people who, they don't have the stability of the medieval system where everything always stays the same and you take comfort in the fact that everything's always the same, but they also don't have good tools for dealing with new and changing Mm -hmm. things in their world. And the most ready explanation for anything that goes wrong is, is witchcraft. So these local issues, like the, the disease famine, things like that, they aren't really the only thing that were sort of rocking their world a little bit, that they were needing to blame on something. Mm-hmm. We have, um, there were a lot of economic problems at this point in time. The Black Plague was, was coming up uh, in, the, in the 13th century, which was a, a huge event in, in European yeah. history. I mean, you know, a third of the population died. Mm-hmm. It, it was insanely uh, overturning for them. There were climate issues. There's something called the Little Ice Age, which took place between 1250 and 1850, Mm. where the average temperatures dipped quite a bit. Um, I mean, we're not talking about, you know, glaciers coming down and woolly mammoths and all that stuff, but it was bad enough that there were, like, major problems with the crops. There were major problems with um, uh, the growing season. And, you know, everyone sort of felt the, the effects of this. A lot of people have looked at this and gone, you know, so much was going wrong for people in this period that they needed something to blame. Mm-hmm. And another thing that we had was a fracturing of the church at this point in time. Uh, I mentioned the, the Protestant Reformation earlier. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther in, in the 16th century wasn't the first person to try and change from Catholic Orthodoxy, right? Right. In 1054, you had the split of the Eastern Orthodox Church, but that was somewhat because they were so far removed from uh, from Europe. I mean, they were mainly in in uh, Turkey and in Asia that it didn't have a major effect on people's lives in Europe. But in sort of the uh, the 13th and 14th centuries, even before Martin Luther, you had people that were looking to separate from the church that didn't agree with the church's uh, theology, mm-hmm. and sort of. This this sort of spiritual uncertainty was a little bit rough on people as well. Yeah. They didn't. Uh, they were having. They were having problems in that they knew that other religions existed, but they tended to be outside of their borders. It was fairly clear cut that you know if someone was another religion other than Christianity, they were probably from somewhere else. Yeah. You had issues, say, in Spain with the uh, the Moors who were Muslim, sort of invading across the the Strait of Gibraltar from Northern Africa, but they were an outside force as well as a different religion, right? And so you could sort of draw lines along, you you draw state lines that were also religious lines, Mm -hmm. 
with these heresies that were coming up. And I, I use the word heresies because that's that's officially how they were designated at that point in time. With these heresies that were coming up, all of a sudden you have people who could very well be your next door neighbors who believed something so fundamentally different from you that you that you really couldn't handle it intellectually, and yet everything else about them was the same. Spoke the same language, they paid taxes to the same politicians, they, you know, like they, they, they knew the same people as you, your children could one day marry their children, and you could potentially never know that they had this terrible secret, mm-hmm. right? Which was really disconcerting for people. And then you had the, um, the Protestant Reformation in the 1510s, where there was actually a full split that the, the, the there was a, a heresy that the church couldn't put down, all of a sudden there were major problems in terms of cohesiveness within religion uh, within Europe. The sort of trajectory of of witchcraft trials within Europe really follows this religious uncertainty fairly closely. Mm-hmm. By the time things end, I think I set a, a finish date of 1750 on this. By the time 1750 rolls around, most of the religious problems in Europe have sort of been uh, sorted out. There was a, a war uh, called the Thirty Years' War that was mainly in Germany, which was at this point a whole bunch of little tiny states, that basically what happened was whoever was leading each tiny little state got to pick the religion of their state and when you have this sort of patchwork quilt of different religions yeah. and they all find a reason to go to war it like it was it was as much a, a religious war as it was a political war but what happened at the end of that was something called the treaty of westphalia mm-hmm. and what the treaty of westphalia said was each state is allowed to pick whatever they want to do within their own borders each state has their own agency no state gets to impose their their will on another state and that really helped to kind of sort things out religiously as well, because even though the state next door might be a different religion than yours, that's okay because you didn't have to worry about them coming over and trying mm-hmm. to push their views on you. As soon as that happened, the whole uh, witchcraft thing really, really settled down. There were events after that, of course, mm-hmm. but the main thrust of the uh, hysteria was in this, in this very uncertain religious time. People have also pointed to kind of uh, class conflict as being a, a reason for it, in that, you know, with all these things going wrong, it was really useful for higher classes to kind of let people blame witches for any problems, because yeah. if they weren't, they were going to be blaming them, mm-hmm. right? So there's a lot of good reasons for people to kind of focus on witchcraft as the source of their problems. Mm-hmm. The thing is, a culture where witches could be blamed for all of this doesn't just spring out of nowhere. So next we'll look at kind of where, like what the, what the social background is that kind of, relate, uh, kind of leads to this society that believes in witches' sabbats like we talked about. But uh, first we'll take a quick break. All right, we're back on HI101 here with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hello. And we were just talking about sort of what people believed about witches in uh, the early modern period. But I wanted to talk a little bit about how you kind of get a society to a place where people literally believe in all of these things as being not only possible to happen, but actually happening around them at all times to an extent that they're willing to execute people over it. Because I mean, it's one thing 
let's say today for you know many many people to believe in something like say palmistry mm-hmm. right but i don't know how many of those people would actually believe in palmistry to the extent that they would be willing to either die for it or kill for it you know what i mean like yeah. <laughs> it's it's i i mean the, the degrees to which people believe in what in, in the information that they're getting from it varies most people it's more mm-hmm. entertaining some people really believe in the guidance that it gives them but i think you know, for example, if a palmist was to tell someone to do something illegal, I don't know how many people would actually do that. <laughs> yeah. Right? Certainly not on a societal level. No. Were witches at this time associated with things like divination, or was it like purely negative, evil? Well, that's that's kind of the interesting thing, is that divination began to be seen as something that was evil. Okay. Yeah, and and that's sort of where I'd like to to start is this kind of switch towards that that idea, but we don't quite get there right away. An interesting thing about kind of the way that demons were seen in in Europe at this time, demons and, and any magic whatsoever, was that in early Christianity, I mean, there's certainly a belief in demons, but the belief was that Christians, any Christian, has the ability to dispel demons fairly easily. Basically, all it takes is invoking the name of Christ, and demons are gone. So that's, that's basically the first thousand years of, of Christianity, is, is that demons weren't really seen as a problem. What kind of happened on, on that front was that first we had the millennium in the year 1000. People in the year 1000 believed that the world was coming to an end just as much as people in the year 2000, if not more. Mm-hmm. And when it didn't people kind of felt a little bit unsure about their kind of spiritual place in, in time. And, and it, it caused a little bit of, um, a little bit of a crisis. I mean, I don't want to overstate mm-hmm. uh, how important the millennium was, but it was, it was a little more important than what we saw in the year 2000. Yeah. There have been, there have been people predicting the end of the world for forever. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this was neither the first nor the last time, but there was a bit of a pivot at that point in time. Shortly after, we talked before about the Great Schism of 1054, where the uh, the Orthodox Church split off. That really bothered people spiritually, because all of a sudden we no longer have one united Christian church. Mm-hmm. There's a fork in the road now. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about the schism is that this isn't unique just to this, the Great Schism of 1054, but when you look at the issues that they decided to split over... They look relatively inconsequential. Like, they look very, very pedantic to us. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the key there, is that you really have to put it in the perspective of the people actually living through these things as to how important the theological issues were that they were looking at. Mm-hmm. You had things like, if you look at the Ten Commandments, there's a, there's a commandment saying that you're not allowed to uh, worship false idols. That's mm-hmm. fairly well known. The Catholic Church had a long tradition of creating uh, imagery of of um, Jesus, the apostles, the saints, and the reason for this was low literacy rates. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, to put up stained glass of the Stations of the Cross in the church allowed people to understand the story of Christ because they didn't necessarily speak Latin, which is what the church was speaking to them during the homilies. Mm-hmm. And they didn't necessarily read Latin, which is the only thing that the Bible was printed in. Right. So how else do you teach large number of people 
about the Bible if they can't read it and they can't understand someone reading it to them? Well, you use imagery. Mm -hmm. So there was this distinction between veneration of images and worship of images. So basically the, the church was saying you can feel reverence towards the things that are being represented by an image without worshiping the, the actual physical image itself. Yeah. So the Orthodox Church in the East had a problem with that because it violated one of the Ten Commandments. It said, listen, it's pretty clear, you know, no worshiping of idols. So that was one of the major issues that caused the schism. Okay. Right? There was also another issue about the hierarchy of the uh, the Trinity. So with um I, I can't even remember at this point that's how that's how like detailed this stuff is one of them said that the um obviously god the father was top and then one of them said that christ and the holy spirit were co-equal okay the other one said that it went in line there was god the father then christ then the holy spirit okay and this was worth splitting off it, it like <laughs> And again, you, you you think about it, and it seems like guys who cares, right? Like, it's, yeah. But this, it was that important to them, theologically speaking. And you have to kind of put your, yourself in that headspace to really understand mm-hmm. what comes next with these heresies that pop up over the the um, the early modern period, the late medieval period. They were that concerned about orthodoxy, about which one was the correct Christianity, mm-hmm. which is really really interesting stuff. So in the 12th century, you saw the rise of several heretical sects, the biggest ones being the Cathars and the Waldensians, okay? Both of these sects were something called dualists. It's also known as uh, uh, Gnostic. So they believed that there was a physical world and a spiritual world. Everything about the spiritual world is good. Everything about the physical world was evil. Okay. It's there to distract you from uh, spiritual pursuits. Uh, I don't want to get into the theology of all of this, but it is super against Catholicism or the churches that existed at that point. Oh, okay. There's there's lots of problems there, mm-hmm. uh, theologically speaking. But the thing was, it was a big enough movement that it, they actually had a really hard time suppressing these uh, heresies before word got out that it exists. It existed as a belief system. So when... They were trying to suppress, when the church was trying to suppress these these heresies, they ran into a bit of a problem, which is that these theological differences were a little bit too subtle for most people to really understand. Your average subsistence farmer doesn't really care about, you know, so, some of the subtleties that to clergymen meant the world, right? And so, basically, what they had to do was um, embark on a on a campaign of propaganda about these heresies. So they would spread stories about these these people. In in twelve thirty three, Pope Gregory the Ninth issued a papal bull. A papal bull is a, a statement from the Pope that's official. It, it is in the capacity of leader of the Church. It is as official as you can get, mm-hmm. speaking as the Pope. In this papal bull, so. Dead serious, super important. He talked about how these heretics at their meetings would worship the devil. He talked about how they would begin by kissing a toad, sometimes on the anus. Mm -hmm. He would talk about how 
they would greet a cold, pale man and kiss him on the cheek. And when he, when they kissed him on the cheek, all feelings of Christian community or uh, values would leave them. They talked about them making offerings to a goat statue, talked about them uh, singing songs, talked about uh, half man, half cat appearing at their, their uh, meetings, right. talked about how they would often end their meetings with, with drinking, with, uh, with an orgy, um, often incestuous or homosexual in nature, in a papal bull. Mm-hmm. You'll notice that a lot of those things that they talked about sound exactly like a witch's Sabbath. Yeah. And that was not a coincidence. Not a coincidence in the least. What they were trying to do, again, is trying to dehumanize this belief set as much as possible. Mm-hmm. If you say, you know, my, my version of Christianity is slightly different than your Christianity. I, I believe in 95% of the same things, but I disagree on a couple of things. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult to argue that there's a problem there. Yeah. If people look at the options as being between the church and incredibly offensive devil, devil worship... It's a little bit easier to sort of help them into the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> as dishonest as that was, I mean, I think the intentions were good to some extent. I mean, they honestly believed that these heresies were wrong and they were trying to help their parishioners to get to heaven. And you have to be as relativistic as possible when you're looking at these um, disagreements between very subtle differences in in theological opinion. So were they making these accusations about each other, or was it like one group attacking the other? It was absolutely the Orthodox Church attacking the heresies. Okay. Yeah, there were no heresies that were claiming this about the Catholic Church. The worst that you would get from the heresies was, um, for example, the Waldensians believed that any of the um, sort of standardized rituals of the Catholic Church just didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Not that they were wrong or bad or evil, but that because they were of this earth, they really did nothing for your spiritual health. Right. It was irrelevant. Yes. Uh, for example, they would say that holy water, which is water ble- blessed by a priest, had no properties any different than water that you got from a well. Mm-hmm. They're saying that it doesn't matter. They're not saying that it's evil or bad. They're just saying we don't waste our time blessing water because we don't believe that it does anything. Mm-hmm. So, no, they didn't. They didn't demonize uh, the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Catholic Church, at all. To be honest with you, I don't think they had enough people to get a movement like that going. We're talking about fairly small communities here. Oh, okay. Um, there, it, it wasn't as though there were millions of Waldensians at any point in time. Mm-hmm. But sooner or later, they would get to a size where the Catholic Church basically had to say, you know, no more. Like, I can't, we can't suffer this to to exist any further. They're getting too much traction. Mm -hmm. The next uh, event that I want to talk about is in 1307. There's this little order you may have heard of called the Knights Templar. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Kind of a big deal ever since the First Crusade. They had become very influential in Europe, mainly because... A, they weren't tied to any specific state, and B, because they basically invented banking banking in Europe. Hmm. You could go to Stronghold of the Knights Templar, you could give them 10 pieces of gold, they would hand you a piece of paper saying, you know, 
we have your 10 pieces of gold, and you could ride across Europe and turn it in at another Templar stronghold and oh. get your 10 pieces of gold back. Interesting. Which is a much safer way of traveling yeah. than carrying your 10 pieces of gold with you. Mm-hmm. A lot of people point to it as the first uh, successful checking account, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, you And I mean, you'd have to make your mark to prove that it was yours and all of that. And it wasn't maybe the safest uh, system that's ever existed, but again, better than actually carrying your wealth with you, especially if it's a large amount. Mm-hmm. The Templars were looking at building uh, their own state. This is something that other orders of knights had done before. Uh, you've heard of maybe of the Teutonic Knights yes. in Germany. Mm-hmm. They had started their own. Yeah, they wanted to do something similar, or they, they had been talking about it a little bit. Okay. The King of France did not like these guys. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of problems with them. He managed to sort of set something up with Pope Clement V, who also wasn't a big fan of the Templars. He managed to set up what was actually kind of incredible. Uh, On 13th of October, 1307, they had sent out sealed orders to uh, local authorities all over Europe and told them not to open it until 13th of October. And on 13th of October, they opened these orders and said, arrest every Templar you can get your hands on and basically managed to wipe out the order in one day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, it was actually Friday the 13th of October. Some people point oh. to that as the uh, as the bad luck right. yeah. connotation. I mean, I've, I've heard the, the, the bad luck thing from a number of sources, but that's one mm-hmm. that I've heard that, to be honest, sounds a little more credible than some of the others. Yeah. The charges that were leveled against the, the, the Knights Templar were accusations of homosexuality, accusations of bestiality, accusations of uh, worshipping a goat-headed god called Baphomet, okay. which they believed they had found in the temple, temple in Jerusalem. So what you're seeing with this arrest is, again, worshipping false idols. Again, uh, the goat-horned thing is is a common theme. Mm-hmm. That's where you kind of get this idea of horned demons. Yeah, right? like a horned god. Yeah. yeah. There's also connotations of sexuality behind horned gods in, in uh, medieval symbolism. So that's sort of important to that idea as well. Mm-hmm. Homosexuality is is strictly forbidden. I mean, that's associated with uh, the story of the destruction of Sodom. So it's it's viewed as a, a thing that... I mean, because there were no children associated with the order, mm-hmm. you couldn't have sort of uh, infanticide and cannibalism, but homosexuality was something that a group of men could plausibly be up to mm-hmm. that was, you know, there was an example in the Bible you could point to that was worth destroying an entire city over. Right. Uh, bestiality, again, removing people as much from standardized society as possible. So, I mean, essentially, they're accusing them of, of devil worship, just in not so many words. And it's a lot of the same charges as they were leveling against the Waldensians, against the Cathars. Mm-hmm. So you start to see this pattern of of what it looks like for someone to not be a Christian, but to kind of look like a Christian. Mm-hmm. Right? So this is this is what... This is set up as this is what it looks like when society is being subverted from the inside. Because, I mean, the Templars were ubiquitous. They were everywhere, mm-hmm. right? And people looked at them as as uh, holy men. I mean, it was, a, it was a, an order of people protecting, or at least was founded as an order of people protecting pilgrims to the Holy Land, right? The consequence of this that they weren't expecting was that between the unfair accusation of the the, uh, the Templars, between between that and the heresies that were starting to come up, 
the threats on their borders from various uh, Muslim societies, so the Turks, the, uh, um, the Moors, all of a sudden people are feeling a little bit uneasy because it feels like what was a fairly stable society is sort of being eaten from the inside. Mm-hmm. You can't really trust your neighbor again, like I was, I was talking about before. It made people a lot more anxious about their spiritual well-being. In the 13th and 14th centuries, we also saw something kind of starting to come up, which was known as ritual magic. This isn't the kind of thing that we're talking about when you've got a local healer who knows to crush up a certain herb and stick it in a a wound to keep it from festering. Practitioners of ritual magic were educated men, often priests, who believed that through the power of prayer, they could summon and control demons to do their bidding. Hmm. Okay. So this is where you kind of get the popular conception of... um, Things like drawing the circle of chalk on the ground to contain the demon, uh, of using ceremonial knives or hooks or, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that in order to control the demon that you summoned. Mm -hmm. The whole, you know, that that kind of idea that you get from movies of like, you know, the grizzled old man in the tower drawing the circle and lighting the candles and summoning a demon. This is it. People were doing that. Right. Okay. They thought that that honestly worked. In general, it was seen as sort of a last-ditch effort. For Catholics, especially at this point in time, what you do is you pray to God when you need something, and if that doesn't work, you pray for the intercession of, this, of, the, uh, of the saints who will pray to God on your behalf, the idea being that, they, uh, that God will listen to them more readily than to you mm-hmm. uh, because they're holy people. If neither of those worked, well, you could always try a demon. So these were mostly men who were doing this? Yes. Like priests? Yes. Okay. Yeah, academics. There were books okay. books full of spells. There were books full of oh. descriptions of demons. You would need to uh, summon a demon by name. So you would go through and you'd find out that this demon is good for instances of driving a person from their home. And that's the best thing that he does. That's the thing that he does well and anything else he's not so hot on. Mm-hmm. So if you need to get somebody out of your neighborhood, maybe uh, summon that demon. It would come with, I, I mean, they were, they were grimoires. They, were, they would come with a description of the demon. They would come with a description of how to best summon them and mm-hmm. control them. Okay. And, and men were performing these rituals. They were actually trying to get these demons to intercede on their behalf. Now, a guy comes along named Thomas Aquinas, and he saw what was happening... He, you know, he was alive in the 13th century. He saw what was happening and denounced it as dangerous. Basically, what he said was, "Okay, well, it doesn't matter that you know, if you're if you are summoning a demon because your mother is ill and you want their magical help to to save her, that's still using evil to do a good thing, mm-hmm. and therefore isn't like not authentically good. Exactly. Yeah, that's not mm-hmm. allowed. That's still an evil act." St. Thomas Aquinas believed that it was, like, all the rituals designed to sort of uh, contain and control these demons Mm -hmm. didn't really do anything. He believed that the rituals were... He he believed that the demons played by the rules of the rituals in order to help the people feel in control so that they would continue to summon these demons to give them access to this world. Mm -hmm. He believed that many of these demons saw these rituals not as a way to control them, but actually as a form of worship. 
So to call for a demon by name and have him appear surrounded by candles was as much an offering to the demon as it was a means of control. Okay. Every, like, five minutes or so, I want to circle back and remind you that there are no demons. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, I'm talking about all this stuff as though it's a very, very real thing. Mm-hmm. And that's because it was to these people. Mm-hmm. But, again, these were guys that were doing these rituals and not having any success, but maybe believing that the demons were invisible, were maybe believing that they weren't worthy enough or powerful enough to summon these demons, but telling people that they were able to because they didn't want to admit to it. Yeah. I mean, when you have a societal belief on this level, mm-hmm. it's really difficult to speak against it. I mean, even Thomas Aquinas wasn't speaking against it saying, guys, you're not doing anything, this mm-hmm. is useless. He was saying, guys, this is dangerous. Yeah. Um, like, there's a very strong undercurrent of fear that's going on. Absolutely. With this. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And the other thing that Thomas Aquinas said was that when, when you hired a demon, you were putting yourself at risk. Mm-hmm. He believed that the people who were summoning these demons, uh, rather than controlling them, were actually being controlled by the demons without them realizing it. Mm-hmm. And he believed every time someone summoned a demon that that was one more step towards uh, giving yourself to Satan and to his control. And again, remember, these were priests that were doing this, not just uh, academics. I mean, most academics were priests or of some religious order. So were these priests then going to face consequences for their actions or maybe be executed because they're communing with the Dark Lords, so to speak? Well, on one hand... It wasn't like they're going around saying, so I was summoning this demon last night and you wouldn't believe what happened. So it was pretty like hush-hush. It was very (laughs) hush-hush. If you were a priest and someone went into your room and found uh, one of these books on summoning, you might face some disciplinary action because this is clearly outside of orthodox dogma, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. not, (laughs) that's not how you're supposed to go about things. Mm -hmm. But it was being done and on a fairly grand scale. And, I mean, you would also have powerful men like nobles that would have magicians on their staff. Mm -hmm. They would have royal magicians who wouldn't necessarily be priests, but sometimes ex-priests or simply very educated men who were familiar with these things and ask them to do spells on their behalf. Mm -hmm. So that that was a very real part of, of life at that point in time. Now... After Thomas Aquinas, I mean, Thomas Aquinas is an interesting guy. If you're interested in church history at all, it's not for everybody. I know it's a really dry subject, but he, he and his works did a lot to sort of revitalize the the medieval church. A lot of what he wrote ended up being taken as very, very true. So he made a lot of changes. And one of them was this demonization, interesting choice of words, Adam, demonization (laughs) of demonology. Um, it's saying that there is no good way of, hire, of, of, of summoning a demon. Mm-hmm. You can't do it in a safe way. You can't do it in a good way. Like and if you're doing it at all, there's a problem. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so what ended up happening, once again, is accounts of what ritual and t- magic entailed started getting blown out of proportion, made more outrageous, and started coming in line with the heresies that we were talking about. So rather than, say, drawing a a circle when the clergy were telling people about 
uh, the common people about the dangers of hiring, or of summoning demons, they would tell them that the uh, say the circle needed to be drawn from the blood of a sacrificed animal. Mm-hmm. Or, and I mean, you know, to be fair, some of these ritual magicians were practicing animal sacrifice and yeah. doing a little bit more edgy stuff. Not all of them, mm-hmm. but you know, all of a sudden it turns into um, needing to you know, sacrifice human beings. It turned into uh, elaborate potions and, and, and things like that that were required to summon these demons. And all of a sudden, they pushed, once again, ritual magic from the sphere of just just sort of fringe religion. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, the, the, the early summoning books constantly invoked the power of Christ to protect the person from... The summoning. Yeah. Early on, you were supposed to go to confession immediately before your summoning so that you were purged of all sins and that the demon had nothing to latch on to use against you. Mm-hmm. It was very, very uh, enshrined in religious ceremony. It's just that it wasn't really an official ceremony. It wasn't one of the official seven sacraments. It wasn't, you know, you, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But they were taking every precaution, spiritually speaking, to make sure that they were good Christians in the course of doing these summonings. This was twisted into these men basically making pacts with these demons, that mm-hmm. they were uh, renouncing Christianity in favor of the power that these demons offered them. Right. I mean, this is the point in time where you get stories about Dr. Faustus, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like, this idea of getting in bed with, with demons is is really really strong in the in sort of the popular consciousness in Europe at this point. It's kind of interesting. Um, in in the late medieval period, it was actually considered heretical to believe in witchcraft. Really? Yeah. Uh, up until 1326, between about 785 and 1326, it was considered heretical to believe in witchcraft because to believe in witchcraft would suggest that either there is a power outside of God. Mm-hmm. Or that the power of Satan was stronger uh, to the power of Satan to inflict evil was stronger than the power of God to protect people from evil. Okay. So if you went around talking about witchcraft, uh, you could actually get yourself in trouble. So I think that's that's really interesting to note because of this like really significant switch between the 1100s and the and the 1300s in thinking about what demons could do mm-hmm. to the average person, to day-to-day life. Right. Well, like, it's interesting to, to think that it's unorthodox to believe in witchcraft, but then to use witchcraft as, like, a fear tactic. Well, that's the thing. In 1326, Pope John XXII authorized the Inquisition to persecute witchcraft, and it was the first official recognition of witchcraft in several hundred years. Oh, okay. And that's when this idea of witchcraft being a societal problem mm-hmm. really lit up. Okay. Okay. Not much happened in 1326, like immediately after. That's when we're talking about the uh, what's called the medieval inquisition. So that's when they were looking into people like the Waldensians, mm-hmm. trying to determine what to do with those heresies. But in the 1420s, secular powers actually started... Uh, exterminating the Waldensians, there was well, you could call them witch hunts mm-hmm. <laughs> against these <laughs> against these heretical people, actually actually killing them. And when that happened, all of a sudden things just sort of exploded in terms of who was 
who was being persecuted, how often they were being persecuted. And then in 1484, Pope Innocent VIII explicitly recognized the existence of organized groups of witches, so the the witches' sabbaths, Mm -hmm. the explicit um, offering of themselves to Satan, the uh, familiars, any of the uh, ritual magics, and the specific day-to-day magic that, uh, uh, maleficia, that affected... Um, the people around them, the weather, the crops, all of that. Mm-hmm. He officially re- recognized that existence and called for their eradication. And with that, the uh, the witch trials began. And so we'll leave it off right there, and we'll be back. With the establishment of the patterns of behaviors expected from heretics, early modern Europe was primed for mass hysteria. Seemingly unrelated moves made by the nobility and the church laid a groundwork for who witches were, what they could do, and what to do about them. There are plenty of extra notes on the website on some of the more complicated bits of church history that I had to sort of gloss over, so please be sure to check those out while waiting for the next episode on October 15th when we watch the whole system go up in flames. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.